In October 1874, in a Pennsylvania mining town, a man called Yanto Parker lies dying. In 1831, Yanto left his hometown of Mirtha Tidville in South Wales. Soon after that, he boarded a ship to America. He eventually settled in the Welsh tract of Western Pennsylvania. The names of its towns, places like North Wales, Upper Marion, and Berwyn, reminded him of home. It's not just the place names that appealed to Yanto. The industrial landscape was familiar too. He had no trouble finding work as a miner. The decades passed. Yanto kept his head down and worked hard, but the coal dust he breathed in daily took its toll on his health. Yanto never complained though, even when he was forced to take to his bed. They say your whole life flashes before you as death approaches. For Yanto, it's just one moment from his life. He sees it play over and over again as he lies on his deathbed. A moment of violence that happened 43 years ago, in a place over 3,000 miles away. In truth, he's never been able to get that instant out of his mind. It's always the same sequence of events with the same terrible ending every time. In the flickering candlelight, the room he's in seems less real than the street in Wales he marched down all those years ago. Back then, he was a young man. Maybe he was hot-headed, easily swayed. He listened to the wrong people. For years, he told himself it wasn't his fault. Another man's words made him do it. That wasn't him. The wild, out-of-control rioter who wrestled the gun out of a soldier's hands and turned it on him. Up until that moment, Yanto had always thought of himself as a man of peace, more at home in the chapel than the tavern. He still has a Bible on his bedside table, the same one he brought with him from Wales. He had learnt something about himself that day, and in the days after, when he had run from justice and let someone else be hanged in his place. He used to tell himself that wasn't his fault either. He left town before the arrests were made. How could he have known that another man's lies would lead to an innocent scapegoat's execution? Yanto closes his eyes as the tears trickle out. He can't lie to himself anymore. It's time to face the truth and confess it. In his final hours, Yanto receives a visitor. He'd heard that the famous Welsh preacher, the Reverend Evans from the village of Nantiglo, was traveling in the area. Yanto had sent word that he would sincerely appreciate a visit from the minister. Reverend Evans couldn't refuse the call of a fellow countryman. The dying man clasps the minister's hands in his own and looks him in the eye. His voice is trembling. The words come with difficulty between his labored breaths. Reverend Evans's eyes widen as he hears what Yanto tells him. It was I who wounded the soldier that Dick Penderen was hanged for. I got away to America as soon as I could after it, but I could never escape the memory of it. When you go back to Wales, tell everybody that Dick Penderen was innocent. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, 
fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a riot and its tragic aftermath. It's the story of men and women driven by poverty, hunger, and debt to march behind a red flag. Of a day that left around two dozen people dead and many more injured. It's about a man who swears his innocence and another who testifies to his guilt. While the third man is the only one who knows for sure what happened. It's about feuds and grievances, secrets and lies, and about what happens when truth is sacrificed in the name of politics. It's the story of a victim who becomes a martyr, and in time, a national hero. It's about a flight from justice and a new life in a distant land, and the shameful secret that the perpetrator keeps until his dying day. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. The event that haunts Yanto Parker on his deathbed has gone down in history as the Murther Rising. It takes place over several days in late May, early June, 1831. On June 3rd, an angry mob converges on the Castle Inn on Merthyr Tidville, where they confront a troop of soldiers called in to protect the town's prominent citizens. The soldiers open fire. The Swansea-based newspaper, The Cambrian, reports the number of dead as 18, though the true figure is almost certainly higher possibly more like 24. It's said that the dead included three women and at least one child. Many more are wounded. So what has caused this outbreak of shocking violence? In 1831, Merthyr Tidville is an iron town. South Wales produces 40% of Britain's crude iron, and Merthyr is at the center of that production. In many ways, it's the engine room of the Industrial Revolution. Merthyr sits in the valley of the River Taff, 
beneath the slopes of the Brecon Beacons mountain range. It's a startling combination of magnificent natural beauty and grimy industrial wasteland. The Napoleonic Wars of 1803 to 1815 sparked an iron boom. The British army needed cannons and other weapons. Welsh ironworks provided the raw materials. The boom led to a population explosion. In 1801, the town of Merthyr had 8,000 inhabitants. By 1831, 27,000. Picture a gold rush town with iron instead of gold. A third of the population is directly employed in iron production, working for one of four families who between them own the town's five ironworks. But in 1829, recession hits the iron industry. Wages are cut, unemployment soars. The working population falls into widespread debt, their possessions seized by bailiffs. At this time, one of the more popular iron masters was William Crawshay II, who owned the Kavartha Ironworks. The so-called king of the iron trade, Crawshay prided himself on paying higher wages than his competitors. But when even Crawshay is forced to cut wages and lay off 84 skilled workers, economic unrest turns into political action. The focus of resentment is a small claims court known as the Court of Requests. Most cases there end with the bailiffs being called in to seize the debtor's possessions. That's what happened in the case of a man named Louis Lewis. On May 31st, 1831, bailiffs turn up to seize some of Lewis's possessions as settlement for a debt. But things don't go quite as the court officers expect. Spurred on by Lewis, his neighbors forcibly prevent the bailiffs from going about their business. But a magistrate intervenes, and Lewis has to watch as a chest belonging to him is taken away. Lewis is a poor man. He doesn't have many possessions, and this is the most valuable object he owns. The loss hits him hard. The following day, June 1st, a rally is held on the hills overlooking the town. Lewis emerges as a charismatic leader, whose rousing speeches given in Welsh stirs the crowd into a fury. He will go down in history as Lewis the Huntsman. At the time of the Rising, Lewis is 38 years old. He lives in a village about nine miles from Merthyr, with his wife and four children. He earns his living as a miner, though he seems to have been a jack of all trades. One of his jobs is a dog handler for the local hunt, which is possibly where his nickname, The Huntsman, comes from. No record of the speech he made that day survives, but the themes are easy enough to imagine. The widespread unemployment, the loss of income, the crippling debt. And then there are the ruthless ironmasters who stand by and do nothing while children are dying from disease and starvation. Most of all, Lewis turns his anger on the hated court of requests and the bailiffs who do its work. To whip the crowd up, he may even have told the story of poor old Margaret Reese, who took to her bed with sickness. The bailiffs came and dragged her bed out from under her, leaving her to die on straw. Lewis leads the crowd down the hillside. A hunting horn blares out in his honor. Their first act is to take back the possessions that have been seized by the court of requests. They break into over a hundred shops and homes in Merthyr and the surrounding area seizing any property that they recognize as their own. This includes the chest that was taken from Lewis the day before. 
The line between restitution and looting is blurred when an opportunistic thief and his gang join in. The crowd is growing all the time. Many are armed with weapons such as pickaxe handles. The threat of violence is never far away. But Lewis does his best to keep them in order. He climbs on his chest to address them, telling them they must write out receipts for everything they retrieve. The stakes are raised when the crowd turn their fury on the home of the president of the Court of Requests, Joseph Coffin. The house is ransacked in a frenzy of vandalism. Furniture and ledgers are thrown out onto the street. Even the wallpaper is torn off the walls. A column of smoke rises from a bonfire. Coffin and his family cower in fear. His house is left a wreck. Meanwhile, the town's magistrates take refuge in the castle inn. They are joined by ironmasters and other prominent citizens. Desperate to restore order, they hurriedly swear in 70 special constables, part-time voluntary policemen in an era before a police force existed. These come from the ranks of the town's shopkeepers and tradesmen. At the same time, they send for support from a regiment of soldiers stationed about 20 miles away in Brecon. The crowd continues to grow. Lewis leads them around the ironworks of Merthyr, where they persuade the workers to put down tools and join them. The fiery speeches last long into the night. The ironmasters peer out nervously from the windows of the castle inn, bracing themselves for what tomorrow might bring. As dawn breaks, the scene is set for a battle. It's Friday morning, June 3rd, 1831, in Martha Tidville. The air is hot and sticky. A thunderstorm rumbles in the distance. On any ordinary day, you would see smoke billowing out of the five ironworks that dominate the town. The air would be thick with the choking pollution that blackens the washing hung out to dry. But today is no ordinary day. The foundry workers are not at their furnaces. The ironstone miners have put down their tools. Today, the working people of Merthyr are on the march. The crowd converges on the Castle Inn in the High Street. They march behind a banner that has never been seen in Britain before, the Red Flag. In their hands are makeshift weapons, clubs, stakes, lengths of wood and scrap iron. Yanto Parker is an aggrieved iron worker and he's marching with the angry crowd. He swept along in the rush. Yanto sees flashes of red, moving about quickly. The crimson tunics of the soldiers from Brecon. These infantrymen line up with fixed bayonets to repel the crowd. At first, the soldiers seem bewildered, wondering what they have got themselves mixed up in. Some of the crowd urge them to throw down their weapons and join them. But the barking commands of the officers quickly impose order. What happens next is confusing. Yanto loses all sense of time. Speeches are made. The sheriff comes out and reads the riot act. They have one hour to disperse or they will be subject to an immediate death penalty. A roar of defiance breaks out. Just let them try. They throw stones and broken bricks towards the castle inn. There are more speeches. The iron master, Josiah Guest, pokes his head out of an upstairs window. He makes it clear that he won't negotiate with rioters, but hints that he will listen to what they have to say if they calm down. A delegation of workers goes inside the inn to state their terms. An end to the court of requests and cancellation of all debts are the main ones. 
Yanto recognizes a young man named Dick Pindarin as one of those who goes inside for the negotiations. The firebrand Lewis Lewis shouts out, Stick together till we get those terms. The crowd rushes forward, Yanto with it. He finds himself face to face with a soldier. He can see the fear in the other man's eyes and the sweat trickling down from his heavy fur hat. He hears Lewis behind him shouting, Off with their guns! Yanto doesn't hesitate. He grabs the soldier's musket out of his hands. The same thing is happening all along the front line. The guns are passed backward over the heads of the crowd. Except Yanto keeps the weapon in his hands. The pressure from the crowd eases. He swings the gun around so that the bayonet is facing towards the soldier. Then suddenly the crowd pushes him forward again. The noise is deafening. The roar of those around him drowns out any thought. He thrusts the bayonet boards, letting his scream of rage join with everyone else's. The soldier cries out sharply as he keels over. His comrades help him up the steps of the inn, blood streaming down his leg his face grimacing in pain. Soldiers appear at the upstairs window of the inn, their muskets pointing out. At last, the order is given. Firemen, fire! The soldiers fire directly into the crowd. When the smoke clears, there is a moment of calm. The mob is dispersing. In its wake, there are bodies lying lifeless on the ground. Streams of blood run over the cobblestones. Yanto Parker looks down at his drab-colored frock coat, now spattered with blood. He drops the musket and runs. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When the gun smoke settles on the afternoon of Friday, June the 3rd, both sides are daunted by what has been unleashed. But it is the rioters who seize the initiative. Armed with the muskets they took from the soldiers earlier, they lay siege to the castle inn. For four days, the streets of Merthyr Tidville belong to them. Barricades are raised, cutting off supplies and communications. At some point, the magistrates and other dignitaries managed to escape from the inn to Penny Darren House, the imposing home of one of the ironmasters just outside Merthyr. Meanwhile, the insurgents go on the rampage, They slaughter a calf and soak a flag in its blood. Even more alarming for the authorities, they get their hands on explosives. Emboldened by their successes, they open fire on a contingent of cavalry on their way to support the soldiers from Brecon, forcing them to surrender. This is no longer a protest march. It's an armed insurrection. And if it spreads, it will be a revolution. The humiliating defeat of the cavalry unit sends shockwaves throughout Great Britain. Finally, the forces of law and order are called into action. 
a strengthened military goes on the offensive. On Monday, June 6, the streets of Merthyr are cleared of crowds, the rabble disarmed. The resistance falls apart. The striking ironworkers return to work. Order is restored. And now, someone has to pay for the havoc that has been wrought. Monday, June 6, 1831. Yanto Parker stands to one side of the upstairs window in the house where he lodges. He's careful to keep himself hidden from the soldiers at the far end of the street below. He watches the troops go from door to door. It feels like a net is closing in on him. He knows what he did, but at the same time, it doesn't feel real. It's like something that happened in a nightmare. That wasn't him. He's not a violent man. Lewis made him do it. He moves away from the window. His hands are shaking as he throws his few possessions into a bag. The last thing to go in is his Bible. He has no coat to wear anymore. He buried it in the countryside because of the bloodstains. Yanto slips silently downstairs, avoiding the creaky step that could draw his landlady's attention. He opens the back door and flees. His plan is to head south to Cardiff, where he can board a ship to, well, anywhere as long as it's far from Merthyr Tidville. Throughout Tuesday, June 7th, multiple arrests are made. The authorities focus on rounding up the ringleaders. But there is one man they want more than anyone else. The hunt is on for the huntsman. That night, Lewis is tracked down to the woods near his home. He doesn't give up without a fight but is finally overpowered in the early hours of Wednesday morning, June 8th. In the words of Ironmaster Josiah Guest, the ringleader and author of All the Mischief has been captured. Another of those arrested is Dick Pendaren. Pendaren is a burly, handsome 23-year-old who earns his living as a miner. He is said to be a good worker, but fond of the bottle. Pendaren's wife, Mary, gives birth to their first child around the time of his arrest. He's an imposing figure who looks like he can handle himself in a fight. In his case, appearances are not deceiving. He had recently beaten up a corrupt law officer with a reputation for bullying and blackmail. Could that be why the authorities targeted him? Pendaren is also outspoken and articulate in his mother tongue of Welsh. We know that he was part of the delegation that went into the Castle Inn on the day of the riot and can be sure that he spoke his mind. That may have been another reason why his name is on the list of ringleaders. There is no doubt that Pendaren was present in the crowd on June 3rd. But the reason he now features so centrally in our story is this. A special constable by the name of James Abbott will swear under oath that it was Dick Pendaren, not Yento Parker, who stabbed Private Black on the steps of the Castle Inn. It's estimated that between 7,000 and 10,000 people took part in the riot outside the inn. Just 28 arrests are made. On July 14th, the joint trial of Dick Pendaren and Lewis Lewis begins at the Cardiff court. The two men are charged with the attempted murder of Donald Black of the 93rd Regiment while in the execution of his duty. No soldier was killed during the riot, but prosecutors are desperate to pin the worst charge possible on Pendaren and Lewis. If found guilty, they could face the death penalty. 
The prosecution's case is that by inciting the crowd to disarm the soldiers, Lewis is as guilty as the man who actually wielded the bayonet. That man, they contend, is Dick Pendarin. The case against Pendarin hinges on the evidence of James Abbott, a barber, one of the tradesmen hurriedly sworn in as a special officer on the eve of the riots. Abbott testifies that he saw a soldier on the steps struggling against the crowd. The court transcript records Abbott's words. As he was on the top step or thereabouts, Dick Pendarin charged him with a bayonet and made an incision in the thick part of the thigh, somewhere above the knee. Abbott then claims he held the soldier to safety, saying that he was bleeding like a pig. Under cross-examination, Abbott is adamant. Dick Pendarin got possession of the musket and stuck the bayonet in him. One other witness backs up Abbott's testimony, a man named James Drew. Interestingly, Drew is also a barber. He may well have been Abbott's assistant. His statement is suspiciously similar to Abbott's, his likely boss. But what about the man who surely knows better than anyone who attacked Private Black? Black himself, now promoted to Lance Corporal. When asked whether his attacker was Dick Pendarin, he answers, I cannot say I saw him stab me. It's an odd choice of words. It almost sounds as if Black is stubbornly refusing to lie when he has been urged to do so. Under further questioning, Black goes on to say, he stood near the place where I was stabbed. Lance Corporal Black is careful with his words. He seems to be a reliable witness. If Pendarin had been the man who attacked him, there's no doubt he would have said so, and he does not. In fact, Black confirms that he saw both prisoners in the crowd, but that he did not see him laying hands on anyone. When asked specifically about Pendarin, he insists, I only saw him taking his hat off and cheering, but not laying hands on anyone in the crowd. It's worth noting that the trial is conducted in English. Both Pandaren and Lewis are Welsh speakers. It's possible that they don't understand much of the proceedings and can't speak up for themselves. The verdicts are pronounced in English by the chairman of the jury. In the case of Lewis, guilty. In the case of Pandaren, guilty. At 8 a.m., Saturday, July 16th, the presiding judge places on top of his wig the loose black cap that British judges wear when pronouncing the death penalty. There is a gasp of disbelief from the courtroom. Surely it can't have come to this. But the judge sentences both men to be hanged in Cardiff Market on July 30th. He ends with the words, May God have mercy on your souls. Lewis and Pendarin are held in Cardiff prison, awaiting execution. Both maintain their innocence. There are many in Merthyr who believe them, including some who were in the crowd that day and saw what really happened. Still, the situation seems hopeless. But then, suddenly, there is a breakthrough. A law officer, Constable John Thomas, comes forward as a character witness for Lewis. His statement carries considerable weight. Constable Thomas recounts how, during the attack on Joseph Coffin's house on June 2nd, he was knocked to the ground and beaten by a group of men with clubs. Thomas claims that Lewis jumped down from a wall and threw himself over the officer to shield him from the blows. Bearing the brunt of the attack himself, Lewis allowed Thomas to make his escape. 
But the crowd didn't let up. An angry mob of two to three hundred chased Thomas down. Once again, Lewis intervened on his behalf, shouting, Honor, honor, he has had enough. In all probability, Lewis saved Constable Thomas's life. The story reaches the presiding judge. On July 21st, he writes to the Home Secretary, Lord Melbourne, arguing that Lewis's life should be spared and his sentence changed to transportation. This means he will be exiled to a distant colony, most likely Australia, where he will live in a special convict settlement carrying out forced labor. It's a harsh sentence, but better than being hanged. Also, there's always the chance of starting a new life in the future. The judge concludes his letter. With regard to Dick Pendarin, I have seen no reason to alter my original opinion. Pendarin's execution is to go ahead as planned. Unknown to the judge, at the same time he is writing his letter, a petition calling for the death sentence to be overturned for both men gathers 11,000 signatures, a sizable portion of the adult population of Merthyr. But this well-intentioned gesture may actually have damaged the men's cause. The petition does not claim that the two men are innocent and should be acquitted, only that their sentences should be reduced on the grounds of mercy. To make matters worse, without consulting Pandaren or Lewis, the people who draft the petition include an admission of guilt. It was probably thought that if they expressed contrition, the authorities would be more likely to show mercy. It's worth repeating, this statement is never shown to Pindarin and Lewis. Neither of them sign it or have any idea of its content. In fact, the two men continued to protest their innocence. Pindarin in particular swears that he was not there at the front of the inn when Private Black was stabbed. On Sunday, July 24th, as Dick Pendarin enters what he thinks will be the final week of his life, the prisoners are visited in their cells by a stranger. Joseph Price is a 47-year-old ironmaster from Neath, about 25 miles west of Merthyr. You wouldn't expect an ironmaster to have such sympathy for men accused of rioting. But Price is also a Quaker, which means he is fundamentally opposed to the death penalty. And it is for this reason that he is visiting the condemned men. Price speaks to both men. He is particularly impressed by what Pendarin has to say. Again and again, Pendarin insists on his innocence. There are tears in his eyes as he shakes his head and swears to God that he didn't do it. Price is also struck by the fact that Pendarin bears no ill will towards his accusers. I forgive them, he says. He goes over the events of the fateful day. Yes, he was one of the protesters who went into the castle inn, but he left by a back door with another man. He then hung around at the side of the inn for 15 to 20 minutes until he heard the first shots being fired. What did you do then? Price wants to know. I ran away. Pindaren says he ran over the iron bridge out of Merthyr. He even gives Price the names of two witnesses who saw him. But why would James Abbott say that he had seen Pindaren stab the soldier? Price wants to know. Pindaren shrugs his shoulders. The only thing he can think of is that he got into a fight with Abbott at the beginning of May. Two of them were at a political meeting and got into an argument that ended in a physical altercation. 
Abbott swore that he would get even with Pendaren. Joseph Price can barely process what he has heard, but there is no doubt in his mind that Pendaren is telling the truth. He also knows that he must do everything he can to save the innocent man from the gallows. It's not simply a question of justice. For him, it's a matter of faith. Joseph Price rides to Merthyr, where he begins questioning witnesses. Without revealing what Dick Pendaren told him, he takes statements from seven people who all independently verify Pendaren's version of events. Price even talks to one of the men who ran away with Pendaren. Not only that, he learns that on the day of the riot, Pendaren was wearing a blue suit. Several people tell him that they clearly saw that Donald Black's attacker was wearing a drab coat. In other words, light brown or beige. Price even speaks to a law officer who had been on duty that day alongside James Abbott. The officer tells Price that he had not seen Pendaren at the front of the Castle Inn. Instead, he had seen him at the side of the building, where he had, in his own words, cautioned him against going forward. Price has heard enough to convince him. Dick Pendaren is innocent. Joseph Price knows that he must take the case to the highest authority in the land. He heads to London, accompanied by John Thomas, the officer who has already spoken up for Lewis Lewis. In his hotel room, Price hurriedly draws up two new petitions addressed to the king. The petition for Lewis lays out the details of how he saved Constable Thomas's life. The petition for Pendaren presents the testimony from the seven new witnesses. Copies are submitted to the Home Office and the Lord Chancellor, Henry Brougham, the most senior lawyer in the country. In his response, Brougham speaks for many when he calls into doubt the credibility of James Abbott as a witness. As a result, Dick Pendaren's execution is delayed until August 13th. Pendaren has two more weeks to live. Two more desperate weeks for his champion, Joseph Price, to somehow get the death sentence overturned. In the meantime, Lewis's death sentence is overturned. Instead of swinging at the end of a rope, he'll be transported to Australia, where he will have the chance to start a new life. But Lewis's good fortune does not help Pendaren. The authorities are even more determined that at least one rioter should hang, and the alleged confession in the first petition still counts against him. In an attempt to counter that, Joseph Price takes affidavits from Daniel Jones, the chaplain of Cardiff Prison and two other ministers who spent time with Pendaren. They affirm that Pendaren consistently denied any participation in or knowledge of the offense for which he is condemned to die. Even among the so-called respectable classes of Merthyr, belief in Pendaren's innocence is now universal. Price is granted a meeting with the original trial judge, who encourages him to find more evidence, a sign, perhaps, that he is open to persuasion. Price returns to Merthyr and this time is overwhelmed by people willing to testify that Dick Pendaren went out of the back door of the inn and was not at the front when Private Black was stabbed. Crucially, he now discovers that James Abbott, the main witness against Pendaren, had at one point changed his statement. At first, he claimed that he was on the steps when the attack took place. But he later changed this to say that he was part of a crowd of people in the entrance lobby, or passage, of the inn. In which case, Abbott could not possibly have seen what was going on outside. 
Price also speaks to two men who testify that Abbott bore a grudge against Penderin after the fight that occurred between them at the political meeting. On August 5, 1831, Joseph Price rides to Brecon to present the new evidence to the trial judge. He begs for mercy for Dick Penderin. There are signs that the judge is wavering. Following his meeting with Price, he pens another letter to the Home Secretary, Lord Melbourne. Naturally, the judge is unwilling to admit that he got it wrong at the trial. But he does write this. I believe that the inquiries which Mr. Price has made have induced him to entertain a sincere opinion that there has been either a misrepresentation or a mistake in the evidence given upon the trial, and it was not by the prisoner's hand that Donald Black the soldier was wounded. The judge adds that this opinion is shared by other respectable people, Reading between the lines, it is clear that the judge who sentenced Dick Penderin to death now believes his life should be spared, and is hoping that Melbourne will step in and overturn the sentence. Joseph Price anxiously awaits the Home Secretary's response. Penderin himself seems to have already accepted his fate. The final decision is Lord Melbourne's, and on August 9th, he gives it. Dick Penderin must hang. On the morning of August 13th, 1831, thunder rumbles in the distance much like it had on the day Donald Black was stabbed. At just before 8 a.m., Penderin is led out of his cell at Cardiff Prison and taken to a scaffold set back from St. Mary Street near Cardiff Market. The town center is eerily quiet. All the shops are closed. Large numbers of inhabitants have left the town in protest. They want no part in what is being done in their hometown today. As the noose is placed around his neck, Pendaren utters his final words. Oh Lord, this is injustice. As the trap drops, Pendaren's foot catches on the platform. The hangman has to grab hold of his legs and pull. It takes two minutes for Dick Pendaren to die. As his body hangs at the end of the rope, a clap of thunder splits the air and rain begins to fall. The following day, Pendaren's coffin is carried from parish to parish across the Vale of Glamorgan. Thousands line the streets to observe its progress. He is buried at Aberaven, an unconsecrated ground outside the churchyard. His brother-in-law, a Methodist minister, preaches a sermon from the churchyard wall. Legend has it that a white bird settles on the coffin. On October 14, 1874, the Western Mail newspaper carries a story about the well-known minister, Reverend Evans from Nanticlo. According to the report, Reverend Evans was traveling in Pennsylvania when he was called to the bedside of a dying man a fellow Welshman called Yanto Parker. To the good reverend's astonishment, Parker confessed that he was the one who stabbed Private Black, not Dick Penderin. For the people of Merthyr Tidville, the story only confirms what they already know. For Dick Penderin, 
it comes 40 years too late. Pandaren never denied that he was present in the crowd that stormed the castle in. But as he pointed out, so were thousands of other people. It was decided that someone had to pay the ultimate penalty for what happened. It was Pandaren's bad luck that he was the one. It's worth remembering that neither Private Black nor any other soldiers were killed that day. The only fatalities were the men and women and one child shot dead by the soldiers. And Dick Pandaren. Pandaren has since been the subject of songs, poems, novels, plays, and even a podcast. In 1977, a memorial in his honor was unveiled at Merthyr Library. The plaque describes Pandaren as a martyr of the Welsh working class. To this day, the fight for Dick Pandaren's official pardon continues. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Michael Lee Wilson, a gang member who sent two innocent teenagers to prison for a crime he committed. He was a member of the notorious North Tulsa Bloods and was involved in all sorts of criminal activity. But one night, a gang rivalry got out of hand when he accidentally shot an innocent young woman to death. Wilson helped the police frame two blameless teens for his crime and guiltily watched as they were sent to life in prison. But then, hours before his own death, he used his final words to declare the boys innocent. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Roger Morris, supervising editor Kevin Pham, sound design by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley, 